Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks for joining me on the Enrealment Hour podcast. And thank you for so actively ordering my newest book, Hugh Manifestations on Trauma, Truth, and Transformation, which is off to a very good start. It feels good. In the following dialogue, I connected with TRE practitioner and music maker Tara Rye, both because I am inspired by her story and because I believe that her journey is in many ways a reflection of the journey that we all must take to find our way back to our bodies. Whether our disability is physical or emotional or energetic or intellectual, there always seems to be work to be done before we can fully love and accept ourselves. Tara has done a lot of work in that regard and is blossoming as a music maker and TRE practitioner something that she'll talk about in her conversations. In her words, Tara Rai is a British Indian artist and embodiment facilitator, cultivating a nourishing and nurturing relationship to her body has been at the core of her own healing inquiry spanning over a decade. Tara's lived experience of living with the disability on her right arm since birth has given her a wealth of insight and empathy for those who struggle to be in their body and to feel safe in the world. But first, a little bit of Trevor Hall's song, Arrows, from his very special album, The Fruitful Darkness. And I also want to recommend his more recent album, In and Through the Body, which has been a real presence on my path for some time. The journey to re-inhabit our bodies is a challenging one, but we are getting there. One accepting breath after another. This journey's got me bleeding There's some kind of feeling you to come on because I know something about your story, about your your birth experience, and something about the way in which you experienced that and that was perceived culturally, mm. and then where that led for you in relation to your experience of your body and what has happened more recently to help you get more deeply, intimately, and lovingly acquainted with your, your body. And I just mm. thought it would be a, you know... To one extent or another, I think most people in this very head-centered culture, where we're kind of forced to survive by our wits, are already led away from an experience of their bodies and therefore their intuition and and therefore led away from the opportunity to be connected to their unresolved emotions and to clear them. And, you know, I think that the last thing that the powers that we want is for us to be sovereign, centered, and embodied. Because when we are, we see through things, we're empowered enough to take action and we're not easily misled. So, but in addition, if somebody's born with something that is referred to as a disability, I mean, you know, we could get into that whole word, but mm. so another reason to not experience the body sometimes um, in a completely sovereign sense, then I think there's a really important story to be told there. To the extent that you're comfortable, um, 
mm-hmm. maybe bring us back just to the beginning of your life and your background and and just what happened at birth. Sure. Thank you for framing that so beautifully. Um, so, yes, I when I was being birthed into the world, I got stuck and it was a very traumatic birth for not just myself, but also for my mother. And the doctor kind of tried to deliver me the best that they could, but they accidentally severed um, the major nerves on my right arm. And this is a condition called Erb's palsy. And it has varying degrees of severity. So Mm -hmm. I've met people who it's quite a minor injury, depending on what nerves got damaged and mine is kind of on the more severe side so it's a it's a paralysis of the arm the limb and yeah it's been a very pivotal catalyst of healing and also of some of the most kind of challenging early life experiences that have shaped my nervous system and my ability to be really welcome and belong in the world. So, yeah, that's kind of uh, the entrance story. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of how it sort of manifested um, as I grew up, my parents had decided to put me into an all-girls school, which um, definitely was going to be a challenge for anybody. But for someone like me who was um, of colour, so I'm Indian, um, British Indian, and there was really nobody else that had a differently able body such as myself. And so I was very struck with a lot of isolation, comparison, and this real mutant syndrome that I just don't really belong anywhere. Which, yeah, which kind of stayed with me for quite a while. I was trying lots of different ways to kind of make it go away. I was doing a lot of mindfulness from the age of 16. Actually, um, I was quite, I was quite into Eckhart Tolle, and um, and it, like it just wasn't working. Like I wasn't getting enlightened. I, I was feeling very, very separate from my body, and that all really came to a head when I was seriously contemplating taking my life um, in twenty eighteen. And that was a very big year where I had my first psychedelic assisted therapeutic session, which really woke me up to the fact that I have to look at this, this blueprint, this body. And following that, I I found your book. I started doing five rhythms and that was sort of the the time that I 
went into the body and and dropped a lot of the material that I was being fed as a teenager that were actually quite dangerous to some degree. Um, yeah, so so maybe if we could just go back there, come back forward yes. a bit, um, because I, what I was thinking about was sort of trying, I often try, and it's impossible in a way, to sort of empathize with the person's experience who I'm dialoguing with. Mm. And I wonder, just sort of in the early days after you were born and in your sort of adolescent years, um, what was the reflection back to you from family, even if family was doing their best, given their own cultural background? Yeah. What was the reflection back to you from the culture about your, your condition? Um, and I guess the third part of my question um, mm -hmm. is, I know somebody who had a what was called a disability and who said that they didn't, not only didn't, connect with that part of their body in a felt sense, but they didn't allow themselves to connect with any part of it, really, because it would lead them ultimately to a feeling of shame, discomfort. What was your early experience of this thing mm. called the body and, and how might that have related to the condition itself? Yes. So in terms of the family dynamic, yeah, my dad was very hands-on and a lot of the a lot of the love that I received was very tainted with a desire longing to fix me and the condition so I had operations I had lots of physio that was quite unconsensual I think the biggest shame piece was really quite indirect, but it was a very latent awkwardness with my grandmother who she just would never really want to go there, but she'd tell me that she was praying every day that it would get better. And I mean, you know, India historically has this kind of caste system um, where a disabled person would be outcast, essentially. They wouldn't be able to get married. They'd be kind of hidden. And, you know, my grandmother, she was quite old school and inevitably that was in her psyche. And, I've, yeah, I've been revisiting that even now, internalized. And as a young child, I would often look in the mirror because of um, the condition, so my arm that's been damaged is a couple of inches shorter. And I would quite often find myself looking in the mirror and just being like, it's just not symmetrical. And being so upset that everyone else like seemed symmetrical. And I was just like, I would do anything to just be a symmetrical human, physically, and internally as well, because I, I was a very, very sensitive child um, mm. that felt a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I often think about, you know, I used to read a lot of Maslow. I used to sort of try to envision, and it made, made sense to me why I just growing up in such a dysfunctional home, I would 
try to envision a healthy human. Like what is a whole human? What is a fully actualized human look like? How do they walk? How do they look physically? What's their energy like? What's the, where's, what's their point of focus, you know? And we don't spend, I don't think we really spend a lot of time even in the healing and transformation world, talking about some vision of possibility that we might be striving towards that would be considered, you know, wholly actualized human. Um, mm. And, you know, probably we don't do that, partly because on one level or another, it, it feels so far removed from the realm of possibility in our kids' lives, the world as it's organized. But but what, you know, I came to realize as I, and I realized I was doing like the purity bypass or the actualization bypass, mm-hmm. right? Not that there's anything wrong with wanting to actualize yourself, but mm-hmm. it, was, it was the way that I survived the torrents of toxicity and trauma in my environment was to, and I think this is, Maslow had a very difficult experience with, with his mother too, and he used to go to the library and envision, you know, actualized beings. I think this is, was a, is sort of a healthy mechanism so long as you don't spend your whole life doing it. Um, but what I came to realize as I came farther back down into my body and had to confront my unactualized aspects um, was that every single human I've ever known compared to this vision of possibility of an actualized whole being has one or 100 disabilities or more, like all of us. Uh, now, yes. in your case, it was, you know, physically apparent. It wasn't, you weren't physically symmetrical in your words. But the whole thing, if you really think about it, I mean, your grandmother sitting there in some form of culturally conditioned judgment, you know, praying for you to get better so you can become more acceptable is disabled. Your father, even with his loving intentions, maybe not being able to accept it as it is for the same reason on some level is disabled. Everybody, everybody on one level or another has something that is in the way of whatever we call an actualized human. So, um, yes, yes. But I I understand growing up with that, in that culture, in this world, Mm. it's physically palpable. You're kind of ripe for the picking for the judgmental ones. Um, Absolutely. And from day one and, you know, um, going back to that point that you bring, I think, yeah, it's very useful to, to really go into the particulars of that ways that we feel that that nuance of disability that that is different and universal because yeah it's it's gonna have affected us like I've met people with this similar issue and it's affected them it's it's different and simultaneously the gift that it's given them is is quite different but definitely there is a very universal feeling, especially the more I started to discuss this and be, you know, when I was younger, I I really didn't tell anybody that I even had a disability because I didn't want to ask for help and I didn't want to draw more attention to it. Um, And that's really changed a lot in the last few, in the last decade. And yeah, it's interesting how when we share what's difficult for us, it, it really can give some permission to share. Okay, I actually have a similar thing, but it's in this realm. Mm-hmm. And um, that feels really important to me as a being. And, you know, part of why 
I'm so open about talking about it to you today. Yeah, and I'm thankful that you are. I mean, it, if you, if if there is something called an actualized human, you <laughs> got you got to think that we're not going to get there unless we can truth speak about every aspect of our reality. Like it's ironic, the you know the the purity bypassers that I was one of them don't didn't think like that. Don't think like that. They mm-hmm. they they're just striving for you know the perfect asana. And therefore, they yeah. can fool themselves into thinking that in all other ways, they're perfect. I know many of them. But I think the conversation about the ways in which we felt ashamed of something, because I think shame is fundamentally antithetical to the um, movement towards wholeness. Uh, it's a- a- utterly impossible to experience something called wholeness, to actualize all that you're meant to be, to find callings, gifts, and offerings and then to express them and move them into the world if you don't feel like you're worthy. And I understand from a marketing perspective, a political perspective, a spiritual religious perspective, the more disembodied we are, the more embedded we are in some form of self-hatred, the more easily manipulated we are. Absolutely. So this conversation to me is these are pioneering conversations because once we start getting it out into the open and learning, finding ways to accept ourselves and to accept each other relationally, we start to feel empowered to recognize our inherent value and all of our callings, gifts and offerings, and then to bring them into the world. So I, you know, I don't see this kind of conversation as something sort of in its own little category. I feel like it's connected to the movement Mm -hmm. towards health and well-being. uh, So thank you. Um, My pleasure. In, 20, in 2018, when you reached a place where you were not wanting to be here, do you feel like this experience of a disability played a role in leading you to that place or were there other circumstances? So I think it was kind of twofold. I think it was the actual entrance as an event into life where that feeling of stuckness and inertia, it was like I never completed that. Everything that I was kind of doing, it just felt like it didn't really work somehow. I mean, on the surface, it probably looked like I was doing okay, but everything felt very disconnected. The relationships that I was having, the choices I was making creatively, because I I trained uh, as an artist. Instead of really pursuing my artist, I decided I wanted to work in commercial art, in galleries working for artists and rich people (laughs) um, because I didn't think that I was really worth it or good enough to be showcased in galleries. And so, yes, there was a real dance between visibility, invisibility. Yeah, the events that followed in my childhood um, surrounding the disability itself as well as, you know, other ancestral pieces really came to a head in 2018. It was a real pivotal kind of, yeah, dark, dark night of the soul. So take us into the steps thereafter from Mm. that consciousness to this one. (laughs) Yes. So... I mean, the first thing that happened was I decided to get a therapist, which 
was something that I had historically done, but it was um, a method very heady and yeah, did, didn't really work for me as a teenager, but I decided to to get some support and work with um, internal family systems process, Vic Schwartz's work. And I also was working with a somatic practitioner kind of simultaneously who was coaching me into the body and using creative ritual. So mark making, dancing, yeah, kind of ceremonially burying things that I had created. This combination, yes, I was quite consistent for about three years before I started to go, okay, I think I'd like to help others. Um, I feel like I have enough resource to maybe see what I can do to help other people. And I had some very sound advice from someone that said, you know, whatever you decide to do, whatever you train in, really recommending that you um, do something that's very trauma-informed because that's probably the people you're going to work with given your resonance and your story. And so I found um, David Baselli's TRE um, practice three years ago. And TRE, I just what does TRE stand for? Does TRE it stand stands for? for Tension and Trauma Releasing Exercises. Great. And it's a very efficient, tried and tested practice that really gets the body in a very primed, grounded state to shake itself which is a mechanism we all share we've kind of forgotten again societally we've been told it's weak and a bit strange but actually we all have this inside of us this ability to shake to release stress to release tension and trauma and so yeah I found this work and I just immediately fell in love with it and um, did the training over the pandemic. And it's been truly one of the most, I, I really like using the word efficient, <laughs> efficiently gentle um, processes that I, yeah, I've been sharing now with the world coming up for a year. And yeah, I'm very honored to be doing this with people. Uh, as you know, I, I love TRE, and uh, I, I, I did interview David for the Enrollment Hour podcast not long ago. I had a great time with him. Yes. Uh, perhaps give us a sense in terms of your experience of TRE mm-hmm. and in relation to this initiating disability. To what extent, if any, TRE has allowed you to connect to the, say, unresolved material that you've been holding that needed to move? And has it also somehow allowed you to to become more comfortable inside of your own body and more accepting of your body? Um, And if and if so, how is it? Yeah. So I would say that. So um, part of my condition is that I 
don't actually have much sensation of the arm. So even when I touch it, I, I don't really feel very much. And so I had really had this kind of gaping hole experience of like actually just not having a somatic reference point of a limb here. And it was very fascinating because in my first sessions, I was working with a great man called Steve Haynes and we were kind of going back and forth between, okay, so where can you feel sensation? And it was usually, I can feel it in my like fingers. And then we'd go into tremoring and just really allowing through the shaking to start to kind of wake up these sensations that were extremely dormant. And it was a very, at first, very surprising experience that I didn't even, because it was just so normal that it wasn't there. When it started to kind of come back, it was just, yeah, pretty miraculous. (laughs) And I definitely feel that, yeah, even just the way I kind of walk has changed. And having this deeper sort of lexicon for my somatic bodily sensations, it's become a real anchor and home homing device almost and I certainly you know take it with me in my dance practice in my art creativity work and so yeah I know I notice when I'm stressed that it's the first thing to disappear is this right arm because that's just my historical kind of pattern but I finally have a tool now with this TRE and and the other tools that are surrounding the practice not just the shaking but really the inquiry of of grounding of orienting so looking where you are in your space these are all kind of extra tools that are used in my sessions and other practitioner sessions that have helped me feel like I belong somewhere and yeah. that's here. <laughs> that's right here. Pointing to, pointing to yourself. I'm pointing to myself. <laughs> yes, some people know. <laughs> yeah. And, and in terms of this experience you had of sort of the, the birth experience being about stuckness or inertia, mm. um, it feels to me, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, as though you're moving your energy now more actively internally and therefore externally into the world um do you feel like you've sort of conquered that inertia or do you feel as though (laughs) there's still more work to be done to be able to fully bring yourself into motion in the world yeah so i recently released uh, my first kind of musical offering to the world um called malta and i made this with an amazing music producer, sonic magician, um, Alex Forster, who's a five rhythms dancer. And we met through the dance floor. And I mean, it's been out for two weeks. We spent a year and a half making it. And Malta means death in Punjabi, uh, which is my native language. 
And it was really um, catalyzed by my grandmother passing over the pandemic. Mm. And it hit me very hard for numerous reasons. And yeah, I had so much to say. (laughs) I had always played guitar, but had a real issue with the fact that I could never play like other people. Like there was always going to be like a point where I'd go, oh, I'm never going to be as good as this person. So don't bother doing it. And so following my grandmother's passing, I had this real kind of wake up that, oh my goodness, like death, death happens. Like it's real because I'd never lost anybody. And I had a plethora of songs that got written and decided to work with somebody to really take them to the next level and get some assistance in places that aren't my forte, like percussion and mixing and mastering. So yeah, I've had a beautiful collaboration and yeah, you know, singing and having my voice in the world on streaming platforms and etc. has been a new edge for me that's been feeling simultaneously really pleasurable. And also since the release, I've kind of gone through a death process of like, okay. And I don't know if you resonate with this, maybe when you finish a book, but it's like, there's a part of me that goes, like, can I, can I top that? Like, can I, what, like, what now? And I mean, I'm still writing songs. I've got some new songs that are sort of in a new sonic space that has quite an interesting theme already emerging. But um, absolutely, like, since we've released this thing two weeks ago, um, I've had a few imposters, you know, peek their head up. And and it's okay. And I feel like it's integral to the process that there's going to be this expansion and then contraction and, and some scared parts that I haven't met until now because I've not really done this before. So I'm welcoming them and I'm very blessed to have tools to to alchemize, to to listen and witness, but certainly know my my journey of kind of of birthing. It's it's still very much yeah happening. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, I think the imposter syndrome stuff is is just intrinsic to collective consciousness for reasons we sort of discussed earlier. I know that I co-wrote a song called Our Love is a Virus during the pandemic with my friend Laura Sproy. And I thought, this is amazing. I, this song, I can hear this being played in every store. And I mean, I had all kinds of, this is, this is so catchy, you know? Mm. And I think, mm. I don't know, we put it out. That I don't know anything about songwriting. It was just something to keep me going during the pandemic. Mm. I think uh, it's been out a couple of years, a year and a half. I think we were in $18. <laughs> <laughs> but you know 
I think I got enough work around. I'm not an imposter, so that when I saw that it was only eighteen dollars, I just left. Uh, but you know, if that was really my initial point of focus, I mean, you can easily stop yourself on the creation path when those imposters show up, and probably some of the probably the greatest creators in human history had to interface with their imposter syndrome, and luckily, were able to keep going for mm. whatever it means you know yes and i, I read um recently elizabeth lesser's mm. cassandra speaks mm-hmm. um great book. and there's a great passage in there about imposter syndrome and particularly for women of color and it didn't include with disabilities and so the idea is that if we don't have these kind of reference points in our psyche of look, there are other people doing things. It's so easy to believe that we are an imposter. We've just mm-hmm. not seen other examples of difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's it's rife. It's everywhere. And I it's, think it's, it's... It's everywhere. And and I do... I think my shit point in my work is, is away from focus on so much the individual experience and more understanding sociologically who's benefiting from our imposter syndrome. Because I think if we don't really understand how this is organized systemically, that we can Mm. do all the work that we do internally, but it's a powerful world. And those systems, mechanisms, and manipulations are really quite real. And we've created some kind of economic system that's almost organized around imposter syndrome. I mean, you you know, they, they sell you the ideal of cool because you don't feel like you're cool. So what happens if everybody feels like they're cool? Well, then they're only going to purchase things that they want, they need, but never from a place of wanting to be cooler. And there'd still be an economic system that would just be organized. It's been organized. Um, so I wanted to uh, close out by reading a quote from Hugh Manifestations, but is there anything else that you wanted to say? No, I'm I'm very grateful to have had this time with you, Jeff. Mm. Always me, such a pleasure. I'm, I'm excited to hear your quote. <laughs> so this is from my new book, Humanifestations on Trauma, Truth, and Transformation, my new quotes book. Um, you mentioned um, Eckhart. Um, <laughs> so I thought I'd read a quote that ties in with Mr. Tolle and his disembodied enlightenment landscape um, from page 11. Be here now. We can't. We have too much trauma in the way. The power of now sounds good. But first, we have to deal with the power then. Worst things first. It's easy enough to talk about being in the now, but what are we even talking about? Now through the mind, through the heart, through the body? What does it even mean to be fully present? Many of the people teaching nowness are head-tripping. Meditation-addicted spiritual bypassers, what do they really know about presence? The truth is that we are all trauma survivors, and that includes every spiritual teacher I have ever known. Almost every one of them has confused self-avoidance with enlightenment, blaming the mind for their problems and issues while conveniently sidestepping their wounded hearts. Bottom line, we can't be in the present because our emotional and physical bodies are tied up in trauma knots. Threads of our consciousness are still back there locked into the originating wounds. If we want to truly be here now, we have to be there then. We have to untie the knots and heal the core wounds. Then, and only then, will we know the true power of now. Close quote. Mm. 
Um, thank you, Tara. Mm. Thank you for all your brave work. Thank you for your bravery also. Straight for-